Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Vacation Bible School has been an annual tradition here at First Baptist Church for, I think, 80 years. I think they've had, First Baptist, they've had Vacation Bible School here from basically the beginning. And so for basically 80 years, our little church has been sharing the hope of Jesus Christ with the kids of this community through stories and through songs and through activities. And, and, and Kim and I have had the privilege to, uh, uh, to lead Vacation Bible School for the last seven years. And I say lead, she did all the leading. I just kind of was the guy up front doing the talking. So, um, But we have, we've seen a lot of exciting things happen in our community as a result of Vacation Bible School. But I do have to say that this year's Vacation Bible School is probably one of the most inspiring that I have ever seen. And don't get me wrong, okay, Vacation Bible School has always been fun, and the curriculum that we use is, um, is creative and in engaging, and in the messaging is always about God and who He is and what it means, you know, for the kids in light of, of that, right? And, and so the content that we use is always really good. It's top-notch, and, um, and it is God-centered. But for this year... For me, it was probably the most compelling. This year's messaging, the central theme behind Vacation Bible School, was centered on the goodness of God. Right? A, you know, a theme that resonates with me. And over and over again, the kids heard about, and they sang about, and they shouted that God is good. I don't know if you saw the theme in, in all three of those songs. It's all about the goodness of God. And they learned that, that, that to, to not only believe that God is good, but to understand he's good in, in, in many different ways. And that they could see that and then take that and apply that to their lives. In fact, the first thing that the kids learned, that when life is unfair, God is good. Nahum chapter 1 verse 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows, right? he knows those who take refuge in him. You see, the kids, they already know. Right, that life is unfair. They already understand it. Sometimes things get thing get some uh, their friends get things that they don't get to get. Sometimes they get in trouble for for what other kids do. Sometimes bad things happen in their lives for these kids that is just beyond their control, and it's simply not fair. In fact, a lot of these kids go through things that are just patently not fair, and they understand that. They relate to that. They know that. But what they learn is that through it all, that they know that God, right is there for them, and that they can trust in him, and, and, and that he will guide them and set things all, all right one day, right? Because God is just, and God is dependable. Second thing that they learned is that when life is scary, God is good. Psalm 24, 3 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort you. And again, these kids knew, they already knew by their own experience that life can be scary, in fact, many of these kids face some, some very scary situations in life. In fact, some of these kids face some pretty scary things that even adults would, would be terrified by. And, and, and that fear that they experience in their lives can be very overwhelming to them. Right? But they learn that God is ultimately in control. And that those who believe in Him can trust Him to help them to overcome their fears and their worries. And, and to trust that God ultimately will work things out for, for, for good. Right. The third thing that, that they learned is that when life changes, life is good. Psalm 106.1 says, Praise the Lord, or give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Once again, the kids know 
that life changes. In fact, I asked some of the kids while they were here, I said, what kind of life changes affect you? And one little girl said, well, going from preschool to kindergarten was, was a big change for me and it was scary. You know, we kind of laugh at that, but I mean, I imagine for her, that probably was, it was a big change in her life, right? And then I, then I asked the question again, and there was this little boy who said that his parents got divorced. That was the big change that he's facing. You're talking about something that would just like rip your heart out, you know? Um, these kids understand that, that life, life does change, and some of those changes are, are difficult. But what they learned throughout VBS, that they're reminded that God ultimately is in control, and that God will never leave them, and he will never forsake them, and that even during this time of difficulty, they can say thank you to God, and they can praise him for who he is. And then the fourth thing that they learned or, excuse me, uh, the fourth thing that they learn is that when life is sad, God is good. And again, these, you know, uh, Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. These kids, all of them have experienced more than their share of sadness already at their young ages through people that they know moving away or maybe they having to move and changing schools or losing a family member to, to death or their parents getting divorced. In fact, one of the kids said that, you know, Life is sad because her cousin is in the military now and is far, far away from that. These kids right, have all seen their share of sadness in life, but they discovered that God can take the worst parts of life and turn it into something good, like the death of his own son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That was something that was very sad, but God used that for great good, and they learned that there's no part of life that God cannot redeem, and there's no part of life that's beyond God's power. And the final thing that these kids learned is that when life is good, God is still good. Nehemiah 4.14 says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. These kids certainly have seen sadness and fear and change, but they've also seen goodness. Right? And as we talked about, right, however, how every single good and perfect gift comes from above, the goodness of family is a gift from God. The, the goodness of, of friends and, and love and a roof over our heads and food to eat, all those things are, are, are from God. A free country to live in. All that is good that can be experienced is from God. And so we should be grateful and thankful and praise Him because God is good. And I praise the Lord. I praise the Lord for their little hearts as they come to terms with God's goodness. But when we say God is good, we as Christians, we mean something very specific about that. We mean that he is truly and fully good. But for many people, the word good gets lost in translation. Because what we, what we mean by good is different than what the rest of the world means by good. See, the problem is that this word good in modern translation, in modern culture, has lost some of its significance. Right? Because it doesn't mean what it once did. When Christians say good, we mean really good. We mean wholesome, morally pure, excellent, beautiful, complete, right. That's what we mean when we say good. But the world is different. The world, when it says good, it means acceptable, adequate, okay. For example, if you ask people, how are you doing? 
almost everyone will respond with, good, I'm good. Even if they're not good, they're still going to respond with, I'm good. Right? Because it's, that's the culturally accepted, culturally programmed response. You're supposed to say that, I'm good. It's, it's the status quo. Right? It's like saying, I'm okay. I'm doing all right. Fair to middling, as my, my dad would say. I'm good. See, good in this context seems to indicate that it's just adequate. It's okay. It's average. It's acceptable. In fact, think about how we use this word commercially. So when you go to buy something, just about anything, whenever they offer you choices, they offer you three choices, almost always. And what are the choices? Good, better, best. That's the choices they give you. Good, better, best. I want to buy some paint. Well, what kind of quality paint do you want? Do you want good paint? Do you want better paint? Or do you want the best paint? And so, so if something is, 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 is good, it's simply good at the starting level. It's, it's, it's good enough. It's adequate. Right? It'll do the job, but it's, it's not the best. Right? It's just good because there's something better than good. And in fact, there's even something better than better. There's the best. So good for the world really isn't good. It's okay. But when we say God is good, we don't, we don't think in terms that way. We don't simply mean that God is just acceptable. Right? That, that, that he's adequate. We don't even think that there's anything better than him. When we say that God is good, what we mean by his goodness is that he is good by his very essence. That, that goodness is defined by him. When we say God, you know, when we say that God is good, it means that he is the supreme good. That he's the very definition of good. That there's nothing good that surpasses him. Because God is good, all things that are good find their meaning and existence in him. Good things, you know, are good because God himself is good. So love is good because God is what? He's love. Relationships are good because relationships find their origin in God himself. Family is good because family was created by God. Community is good. Because community is a reflection of his nature as a triune God. God has always lived in community with himself as a trinity. All the things that you can see that are good are good because ultimately God himself is good. In fact, the idea of goodness is rooted in who God is. The idea of goodness is, is rooted in his nature and his character. God is good because he is holy. The word holy means set apart. It means unlike anything else. It, it means unique. Pastor and author John Piper, he actually, he actually puts it this way. He says, God's holiness, therefore, most essentially consists of his absolute uniqueness and therefore the infinite value of his beauty and his excellence. He's in a class by himself. He is above all things. He is distinct from everything that is not God and therefore he is of infinite and absolute worth. That's what it means for God to be holy. He is worth most. He is our greatest treasure. He is what we should desire above all things. He is holy. You see, we might have been created in the image of God, but he's still vastly different than us. We are common. He is unique. We are finite. He is infinite. We are limited. He is unlimited. We are bound by time and space. He is boundless. 
we're flawed and broken, and he is absolutely perfect. God is the greatest possible being in the universe. And all other things, everything else, was created by him. John chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word. And in the context, we know that the Word is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was, was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul in Colossians chapter 1 says it this way. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In him all things find their existence. In him, all things, the entire universe is held together. All other things were created by God, and all things find their existence in him. He is altogether holy. There is none like him, which makes him supremely good. But God is also righteous. Now, some people confuse the terms holiness and righteousness because there is some overlap in what those words mean. God's uniqueness and his, and his value certainly are the standard by which we measure righteousness, where that comes from, but, that's, but they're not the same thing. Holiness means to be set apart and unique. Righteous means morally perfect. Right? God is morally perfect. There is no character flaw in him. There is no defect in him. There is no sin in him. There is no blemish in him. All that he does is right all of the time. John, first, uh, John 1 5 tells us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is completely and morally perfect. God is the standard for righteousness. He's incapable of evil. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. He cannot do any wrong whatsoever. He is perfect, which again makes him supremely good. But God is also just. Justice is part of God's goodness because justice is good. Which means he will see to it that all things that are wrong will be set right. Which is exactly what we would expect out of a good God. Because we as people expect for justice to be done. We expect for murderers to get justice. We expect for those who exploit the weak to, to get justice. We expect for those who harm children to have justice done upon them. In this life we demand justice. When someone that we know and love about is harmed... And the person that harms him is on trial. We expect, we demand that the judge be just. That he does what is right. Because a judge who, who lets criminals go unpunished, we would say that's unjust. And that is not good. But God is good, which means he's completely just. And he will see to it that justice is done to all those who deserve it. And all things then will be made right one day. God is good because he's just but also because he's loving. In fact, love itself finds its origin and its meaning in God. The Bible tells us that God is love and that love itself is from God. And it was out of his love that God created the universe in the first place. And it's out of that love that he created you and that he created you in his own image. And it's out of that love that Christ came to the earth to save us. 
And, and, and we can experience love and that we get a chance to understand love because it's a reflection of who God himself is. So the love that you feel for your spouse and your children and your, your grandchildren and your friends and your neighbors and all those you are close to, that love finds its origin in God himself. Your love is a reflection of a greater love, the love from God. In, in essence, you can love because God loves and God loves because he is supremely good. But God is also sovereign. Which means he's the king, the reigning king. Sometimes people get mixed up and say, one day when Jesus is going to be king. You misunderstand, Jesus is king. He is the king. God is the reigning king. He is in control. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present. And there's nothing in all of time and space. It's beyond his control. Nothing surprises him ever. Nothing ever catches him off guard. Nothing is outside of his lordship. Which, by the way, is exactly the reason why when, when life becomes unfair or scary or life changes or sad or even when life is good, that we can trust him. We can trust him because he's firmly and fully in control. We can, we can trust him all in all the circumstances of our lives because he's sovereign over all things. And so he is indeed good. God himself is the very definition and the standard for all that is good. And so when we say God is good, that's what we mean. Now understand, <clears throat> we, we look at this word and we, we, we understand how that word works but that misunderstanding of what, what the word good means causes people to do something really strange. They take this label of goodness and they apply it to themselves. In fact, just about anybody that you run across, if you will just ask them a simple question, just say, are you a good person? Without exception, almost all of them will say, yeah, I'm a good person. They'll take that label of good and apply it to themselves. Right? Yeah, I'm a good person because I mean, I'm, I'm good to other people. Yeah, I, I try to be nice, and I try to be caring, and I try not to hurt anybody. So yeah, I'm a good person. I care about people. I try to live right. right? I love my neighbor. Yeah, I think I'm a good person. They take the word good, and, they, and they, they apply it to themselves. And when they do that, they do so not understanding really what the word actually means, but they also make two important, flawed assumptions about what goodness is. Maybe they make both of them at the same time. And the first assumption that people make is that this word is a relative term. I mean, that good is relative to the person or situation that they're in. When most people say they're good, right, they say that in, in light of somebody who's clearly not good. When most people say, I'm a good person, they're thinking in their mind of somebody who is manifestly not good. They, they think of like rapists or murderers or pedophiles or terrorists. Well, compared to them, I am absolutely a good person. I mean, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't forced my will on anybody, so I'm good. I mean, compared to Adolf Hitler, I am great. I am really good. Jeffrey Dahmer, oh yeah, hands down. I'm a, I'm a good person compared to that guy. So the standard of goodness is really relative to the person I'm comparing myself to. But the problem is, what happens when Hitler is not the standard? What happens when Osama bin Laden is not the standard? What happens when, 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 when the, the, uh, the guy on death row 
you know, who murdered little kids is not the standard. What happens when, when grandma's your standard? What happens when the standard is something like, let's just say Billy Graham? How do you compare then? Are you still a good person if you measure yourself against him? All right, let's go one step further. How about Mother Teresa? I mean, the woman like lived in poverty and abject anguish to, to serve the worst and the poorest of the poor. Like, I mean, this woman had no material possessions. She could have had everything she wanted. I mean, she was world famous, but she, she shunned every bit of that to love and meet people's needs. Completely selfless. If that's the standard, then how do you stack up against her? Are you a good person if she's the measure of what needs to be good? You see, the problem with the assumption is, is this standard of goodness is, is a moving target. Your goodness is relative to who you're comparing yourself to, which means it's not objective. You can't rely on it because we have this tendency. Let's just be honest. Let's just be really, really, really honest with ourselves. We have this tendency to judge other people by their actions, but then we're going to judge ourselves by our intentions. Well, I, I meant to, to, to not hurt them. I, I meant to do better. I, I meant to try harder. And the reality is, is we think... Right? We always mean well. We always believe that we, we mean the best. Right? And we always believe that we're good compared to most people. In fact, most people think that they're better than most other people. Did you know that? It's just a psychological phenomenon. Most people think that they're better drivers than everybody else or most other people. It, it, it is. Just about everybody believes that they are better than average driver. Most people believe that they're better than average in most of the things, most people believe that they're better, they're, they're, they're more than, have a, a more than average intelligence, that they're more intelligent than, than the average person. Most people believe that they are better compared to most of the people. And so this standard, it, it's this really subjective standard that's really about our feelings and it doesn't correspond to reality, which means the assumption ultimately itself is false. Now, understand, goodness is certainly relative, but it has to be relative to the correct, objective, unchanging standard of goodness. And that standard is, is God and His goodness. And so whatever, so whether or not you are a good person, it's not compared to how you stack up against someone else. It's compared to how you stack up against God and His goodness. And in light of His holiness, and his righteousness and his love and perfection compared to that, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're not a good person. No one is. None of us are. In fact, the Bible actually makes it really, really clear. Just in case you, you, you might be having a complex now because I said that, Paul says, Romans chapter 3, none is righteous. No, not one. None. Zero. None. That's all-inclusive. No one understands. No one seeks for God, which means that we on our own don't even desire a relationship with God. God has to change something in us for that to even happen. It says, all have turned aside, all together have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You might say, well, I do good. You might do good things, but that's the difference between, there's a difference between doing good and doing good things. Most people do good the good things that they do, not out of the goodness of their heart and the goodness of God. They do it because they get some kind of satisfaction out of it. It's just some kind of guilt. There's something selfish that goes along with that. No one truly does good. Not even one. And then here comes the indictment. He says, their throats are an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. 
We are prone to not be truthful. We're prone to lie and use our words to harm people. Right? Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. All right? Anybody have seen Facebook lately? Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruined and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Right? And this is a statement that should startle all of us because look at the way the world lives. Look at the way we live most of the time. Does it look like we actually live in, in a deep reverential fear of a holy and righteous God? He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. His glorious standard for goodness. So that means it's all inclusive. We've, we've all sinned. And that means compared to God, compared to the standard that he sets forth, we're not good. And the Bible makes that very clear. And it makes it clear that this wasn't happened by accident. We didn't stumble into it. We were born that way. Right? It's our nature it's who we are, or it's who we were. The Bible tells us that by our nature we were children of wrath, which then leads to the second assumption. The second assumption is that, that good is a balanced outcome. That somehow, some way, that a person's life is this giant cosmic set of scales. Right? And over here you got all the good stuff that you do. And then over here, you get all the bad stuff that you do. And that the goal then is somehow, someway, you've got to get the good side to outweigh the bad side. And if you do that, then you're a good person. As long as this side outweighs this side, then you're a good person. And so the point of your life then is about making sure that you do enough good stuff to then outweigh all your bad stuff. And so that when you do slip up and you lie occasionally, or you get drunk, or you flirt with somebody you shouldn't be flirting with, right? or you talk trash about somebody you shouldn't even be mentioning their name, you just think to yourself, well, I just need to be extra nice to the neighbor who has cancer, or, or I just need to, to donate some food to the food pantry, or I just need to go to the Red Cross and give some blood, then I'm good. But there's a problem with that. Number one, we are subjectively, we think that we know how, that, how to balance the scale. We think that somehow we know how it works. As if we could actually know where we stood. Right? And then we think that we have this, that we have an idea of, of, of what good deeds we do correspond to the bad deeds that we're doing. Oh, I just told another lie. I better go to church on Sunday. Right? Man, I just dropped the F-bomb at the Little League game in front of all them kids. Looks like I'm buying snacks for the next three weeks. Right? Just one trip to Lancaster and back, and I'm flipped off four people. Right? Looks like I better give that guy, the homeless guy, some money. You know? Yeah, I've been having inappropriate thoughts of my good-looking coworker. Better make sure that I'm especially nice to my spouse. So we subjectively think that somehow we know how to balance the scales out. We know what the one-to-one -one correspondence is to make sure that the scales are in our favor. The second problem that we face is that the Bible makes it clear is that it don't work that way. Our goodness is not about making good deeds outweigh the bad. In fact, if life were actually a balance of scales, what we would find is the bad, on the bad side of the scale, always outweighs the good. It always will, 100% of the time. You see, it's not that our good deeds aren't good, it's just that our sin is infinitely more horrible. That's the reason why it required the death of God's own son. 
In fact, God, through the prophet Isaiah, says it this way. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You see, the thing about your sin is not that it has weight to it that can be balanced out by your good deeds, but rather your sin is a pollution. And it makes unclean everything that it touches. It stains everything. It contaminates everything. It perverts everything, including your good deeds. Our sin is a contamination in our life, and it affects everything. And so no matter how much good you do, you're still stained by it. No matter what you do to overcome the the stain of sin in your life, the stain remains. That stain, it even stains our good deeds. And I want you to notice it says, right, that our righteous deeds, the things that we do that are good, the things that that are truly good are like polluted garments before God. Another translation says that it's filthy rags. And the Hebrew itself is actually much more graphic and explicit. Our good deeds are compared to something incredibly gross. I would just encourage you to maybe do a word study and actually figure out what he's saying there in the Hebrew. It's really disgusting. And the point is, is that our best efforts, as good as they may be, are rubbish before God. Why? It's not that our good deeds aren't good. It's just that our sin stains and pollutes and contaminates everything. Which means you cannot overcome the stain of your sin by your good works, no matter how much good that you do. People are always trying to justify themselves. Well, I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to do better. I'm try- that is not how it works. And that means ultimately we're not good people, but rather born sinners. And, and, and on our own, we can't do anything to fix it. Right? Because there is no balancing out of the scales. There's no washing ourselves to be clean, which means we're stuck. And what's worse is, as we said before, God is just. We expect it, right? But now that two-edged sword comes back to us. Because he's just, he's going to give justice to all who deserves it. That God will make each person, that each person will receive justice for their wrongdoing, which means we all, every one of us, then stand under the judgment and the condemnation of God. Deservedly so. Because every one of us have lied. Let's just be real. We all have. We've gossiped. We've lusted in our own hearts. We have, we've been greedy. We've blasphemed God. We've all hurt somebody deeply, whether on purpose or, or accidentally. We've all dishonored our parents. We've all rejected and rebelled against God at some point in our lives. We've all... In fact, let me just challenge you to a thought experiment. Just imagine that we were able to take every bit, everything that you've ever done that's sinful, and every sinful thought, and we were able to then, right now, put it up here on this TV for all in this room to see. Would you hang your head in shame? Absolutely. We all would. We all would. And because that we all stand guilty before God, who will one day do justice on us. Right? The Bible tells us that's what justice is. In fact, Romans chapter 6 says, for the wages... Of sin is death. Now, it's a weird expression for a lot of people, but wages of sin, what does that mean? It means that's what you earn. Because that's what wages are, right? You go to work and they pay you. That's your wages. You've earned that. It's not a gift. They didn't give you something that you didn't deserve, right? It was what you earned. And, and that's the same idea here. The wages of sin, what you earn because of your sin in this life is death. That's what you deserve. The just payment for sin, the consequences of sin, the Bible says, is is death. And we've all 
experienced that on some level. We all know that somewhere that that's the truth because we have seen how sin can destroy friendships. We can see how lies tear people apart. We've seen how sin destroys marriages and families. We have seen how sin has brought decay and violence and illness and disease and addiction to people's lives. We've seen how sin brings death into our individual lives and the lives of other people. And we all know, every single one of us, we're all going to die physically. And that's the tragic result of sin itself. That's the outworking of sin. But ultimately, sin leads to spiritual death which is the worst, that's the worst consequence, which is the complete and permanent separation from God for eternity. That's what, what the Bible calls hell. And so the truth for us becomes very evident then. None of us are good people, but rather broken sinners. And we can't fix it on our own. We're helpless to fix it, which means we're under the judgment of a just and righteous God who will do what is right. And, and, and the penalty for our sin is, is death and hell. And that, my friends is what goodness gets us. That's what our goodness gets us. And that's the bad news. But then there's also the good news. By the way, that's what the gospel means. The word gospel means good news. And so the good news, the wonderful news, is this, that God is good. Because not only is he righteous and just, he is also loving, and he is also both gracious, and he is merciful, and his grace and mercy and goodness is in that grace that the Father, God the Father, sent his Son to the earth on a rescue mission. And the Bible says that Jesus came to the earth for a specific reason. And that reason is to save sinners. To save those who are lost and broken. To save those who think that they're good people, right? Who are trying to balance out the scales in their lives. Jesus came in the world to save sinners, which means he came to save you. In fact, that's what we see in Romans chapter 5. Verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus, at the right time in history, willingly gave up his life for the ungodly. Again, what's that word mean? Who were the ungodly? We are. All of us. Because what ungodly literally means, it means to be unlike God, which is what we are. We are ungodly. God is completely holy. And no matter how good you think you are, you're not. You know it. God is righteous. We're not. God is just. We're not. Now, you might think, well, I'm a pretty just person. I try to do what's right. Come on. You don't always make sure that justice is done. You let people slide sometimes once your friends and your family when it suits your interests. And sometimes maybe you were too heavy-handed some, with someone who really didn't deserve it. Right? So let's not call ourselves just. We're not just. God is just. And guess what? God is loving, and we're not. Now that might come as a surprise. You might say, well, wait a minute, Sherman. Now you've gone off the deep end. I am loving. Now, I'm not saying that you don't feel love, because we can absolutely feel love. And we're capable of great affection for other people. And we, we certainly feel that emotion and it's there. But can we really define our love as a self-giving love the way that God loves? 
Right? The unconditional, no strings attached, sacrificial kind of love that led God the Father to kill his own son for the unrighteous and ungrateful sinner. Are you capable of that kind of love? No, we're not. So because we are ungodly, then we're the ones he's talking about here. And we've been in open rebellion against God from the beginning. Because let's be, let's be honest, we don't want God's laws. We don't want him to tell us what to do. We don't want his counsel. We don't even want God's presence most of the time until, until we're in trouble. Then God save me. Or until I need something, God help me, give it to me. We are self-centered, self-absorbed sinners. We truly are ungodly. But for some reason, beyond what I can even possibly rationalize, while we were weak and frail and unable to reach out to God, Christ Jesus died on the cross for us, the ungodly. Which means that Christ died for us completely and totally by the grace of God. Because let's face it, there's nothing redeeming about being ungodly. And there's nothing we can offer to God. Nothing we can give Him to make Him love us. There's nothing in ourselves that causes us to love Him. Our best efforts are like a polluted garment in front of Him. He simply chose to love us. Which is really kind of a foreign concept to most of us, I know. But Paul says, "For, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the point that Paul is making here is that you would be hard-pressed to find someone who would even die for someone who's righteous. Right? Maybe Billy Graham. Somebody might, die for, might have died for him while he was alive. Or Mother Teresa. You know, maybe somebody of that stature, maybe somebody would have died you know, to protect them. But that's going to be few and far between and very rare. And then he says for a, you know, a person might die for a good person which is kind of a strange expression here, but in the Greek, what you realize is when he says good person, he's talking about basically someone that's dear to you or someone that's familiar, like, like family. So a person might die someone who is die for someone who's like a family member. I mean, I think all the parents in this room would probably die for their kids. I think that's a reasonable thing to, to assume. We would die for family. But the, but, but the question is, is, what about the ungodly? What about the unlovable? Who's going to die for them? Who who would dare die for them? Who would die for the liar and the adulterer and the thief? Who would die for the gossip and the cheater and the fornicator and the homosexual? Who would die for the blasphemer and the idolater and the insolent? Who would die for the greedy and the selfish and the vain? Who would die for the brawler and the person who's always stirring up strife? Who would die for those sinners who, who's, who's in their very nature deny the truth about God and their unrighteousness? Would you? Would you die for Jeffrey Dahmer? How about that, that person here in town that you can't even hardly look at because you've still got that grudge that you're holding on to? What about that person who talks trash about you on Facebook? Would you die for them? Or how about that guy that keeps sneaking around at night stealing your stuff? Would you die for him? Would you die for the ungodly? Well, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus died for the ungodly, died for us. And I want you to notice that he says, while we are still sinners. You see, Jesus didn't wait for sinners to turn to him and say, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, help me. Rescue me. Do something for me. Please, 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 please. No. It says, while 
they were still sinners. While they were still rebels against God. While they're still in the act of spitting in God's face, Christ died for us. Over the most unlovable we can possibly be, God demonstrates his love for us, and Christ died for us. That is real love. And that is the mercy and the grace of God. By the way, the difference between grace and mercy, if you don't know, is grace is where you get something that you don't deserve, and mercy is where you get where you don't get what you do deserve. God in his grace sent his son Jesus Christ to die on our behalf because he loved us. That's something we didn't deserve. In order that we might gain heaven and be with him. Again, something we didn't deserve. So that we would not spend eternity in hell, which is precisely what we deserve. And that truth right there is the grace and mercy of God itself. Does it make you want to stand up and shout that God is good? I don't know what will. You know who you are. I think if there's a truth in all of Christianity that still befuddles me, it's that one. Like people say, they, they want to get, you know, they get all tripped up about the Trinity. That doesn't bother me. Like the Bible reveals that God is trying, and I get that. That Jesus was God in the flesh, right? People get tripped up about that. That doesn't bother me. The thing that bothers me is how could a righteous and holy God send his, his righteous and holy son to die for someone like me? That's what befuddles me. And he says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, because it is the blood of Christ that washes away our sins, since we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God's judgment against sin has been satisfied by the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Jesus took upon himself both our sin and God's holy and terrible wrath for us. He drank it all down. And so what we need to understand is that Jesus' death on the cross accomplished two important things. Number one, it took away all of our sin and paid our debt so we could be free. Number two, Jesus' righteousness, his perfect life that he lived truly according to God's standard, he takes that righteousness and he gives it to us when we put our trust in him. So we put our faith in him and we're no longer considered sinners anymore. We're considered righteous in the eyes of God. Not because of what we've done, but what Christ has done on our behalf. And because of that, Paul says, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now Received reconciliation. That word reconcile, reconcile, reconcile over and He's making a huge point here. And the bottom line point is this, right? When you put your trust in God, He takes away your sin, gives you righteous, gives you righteousness, and then He reconciles you to God. And the idea of reconciliation is this, this idea of something broken and being put back together completely and made whole. It's restoration. And this reconciliation means you have been restored back to a relationship with God that you were created for. And so what that means is you're not just strangers that God just accepts into his home. Like, okay, I've rescued you now. All right, I've been good to you. Now stand over there and get out of my way. That's not the picture that's being painted here. Right? We're no longer his enemies that he now tolerates. We are his family, his children, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace and say, Abba, Father, we're completely reconciled like family. 
We were once God's enemy, and then like that, we become his family. We were once under the condemnation, the wrath of God, and then we go from that to being clean and become, become righteous and part of God's beloved family. It's a radical transformation that God accomplishes for us through his grace and mercy. Brothers and sisters, God is sincerely and truly and totally and really good. All of us were born in sin with a tendency to rebel against God on our own. But because of God's love for us, he enacted a rescue plan that requires nothing from us. Nothing from us except that we receive it. And we do that, as Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, to repent and believe the Gospel. We repent and turn from our sin and we believe the good news about Christ. That Jesus was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life. He lived a life that we couldn't live. He died on the cross to pay a penalty you couldn't pay. He he endured the wrath of God that you couldn't endure to give you a righteousness that you don't even deserve. And then to top it off, he reconciles you back into a relationship with God himself as his family. We repent and believe that good news and trust that Christ is all you will ever need and you will be saved. And this is what we talked about with the kids, maybe not in such grown-up terms, but, but that's the idea that we've talked to them about. And we shared with them how they can do that. It's a simple plan that we call ABC. ABC stands for admit, believe, confess. It's a very simple thing. A, admit. It means coming to terms with the truth. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you need God. Admit you can't fix it on your own. What you have to understand is no one's taking the medicine unless they understand the diagnosis. No one's taking... No one's getting a shot unless they know there's something wrong. No one's going to receive salvation unless they know they need to be saved. It all begins with understanding who God is, holy and righteous as he is, and who you are, the sinner that you are. So you admit that you're a sinner. You admit that you need him to rescue you. And then B, believe. You believe what the Bible says about Jesus. Believe it, not just believe it like you know a fact, but believe it with all your heart and depend on it. Believe that Jesus is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh. And that he came and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for you and was risen three days later. And now is at the right hand of the Father. Believe that. And then confess is see. Confess, declare, make it known. Confess that Jesus is not your homeboy. Okay? I, 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 look, you know, I'm not that old, okay? All right? But when I hear people say stuff like that, I just go, oh boy, you know? Jesus, okay? He calls me friend, but it's not because I'm, I'm his friend, because I'm, I'm friend-worthy. He just calls me friend. Right? Jesus is the Lord. Right? Confess it, that he's the Lord. That means that your life belongs to him. That means, that means he's in control. Right? Confess that he is the Lord. Right? And if you admit those things and believe those things and you confess those things, then you can become part of the family of God. And praise the Lord, nearly 20 children did that this, this year at BBS. Nearly 20 children made a profession of faith. And for that, we say that God is very good. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.